Long story short, it's taking this long story and not condensing it, not cramming it together, but consider you have a drone at 30,000 feet and you're going over several thousand years of God's interaction with man and vice versa. That's what this is and we're right in the middle of it. And we started out with creation, started next, we went to the promise, then the exodus, the covenant, the conquest, and last week with Pastor Derry, we were with the kings, the kingdom. This, this weekend, we're at the warnings. We're going to be talking about the prophets. Maybe they said, let the old guy do that, because he's mean, let's just go for that and see how that works. But last week, we looked at four kings of Israel. We saw the first one, Saul, then David, then Solomon, his son, then Rehoboam. And started out okay, and then it got bad. Then it started out good, then we had a little dip. Then we, and the kings were like this. And a principle was in play in the kings. And the principle is this. The kingdom, or kingdoms, work when leaders have the right how. And the how is humility obedience and worship that's where pastor Derry ended last week when when kings when leaders have the right how if they are humble if they're obedience i.e they listen to god and if they worship him things went well in scripture when they didn't do that things didn't go well and getting not getting that part right was the downfall of the kings so the kings did what they did they led the people in ways sometimes good, but a lot of times not. And God did what he does. And that is he sends helpers to give us course corrections. And the helpers in this book, in the Old Testament, were called prophets. You can read the story of the, because the kings and the prophets were at the same time. So we're looking at a, at a 600-year time span in 28 minutes okay this is going to be good you're going to love this okay from a thousand bc when david was king and saul to about 400 bc so the, the those were the kings that range of time was also the time of the prophets the story can be found in first and second kings and first and second chronicles in your bible if you wanted to know the time frame and how things overlapped and the prophets would come and say, not over there, over here. Don't go to lesser gods, come back over here. And finally, this is what happened. In Second Chronicles, the 36th chapter, the 15th verse, this is how it reads. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them, the king, through his messengers again and again and again and again. And again, you're saying, hey, there are only two agains up there. No, no, it was a lot of agains, okay? Because he had pity on his people. Why did he do it? Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. End of the track. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. That's the king of the Babylonians. He carried to Babylon 
all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces, destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. In the people of Israel and their kings, there was sort of a self-imposed dementia. There was this sense of, well, we forgot, okay? They wandered away after lesser gods. You say, what's a lesser god? Well, a lesser god is something or someone or some practice that looks good, but instead of freeing you, it puts you in bondage. The God, the God of this book, sets you free. Any lesser God puts you in bondage. So they wandered away toward those gods, and because they would not return, God allowed their enemies to take them away. Now, going back to the end of last week, Rehoboam was the king. There was one kingdom, and it split, and ten tribes were in the north, and two tribes were in the south. We won't go into all the tribe stuff, but the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. Let me give you a map. This is your imaginary map. We're in the third grade right here, okay? This is Europe, now what we call Europe. This is North Africa. This is the Mediterranean Sea. The Atlantic Ocean is over here. And at the end of that, in this cul-de-sac, if you will, was Palestine, Israel. Over here is Babylon. Up here is Assyria. In 720-something, the Assyrians came down and took out the northern kingdom, and then they intermarried with them those who were left, and so they weren't purebred anymore. And that's why the Jewish people in the south didn't like the Samaritans, because they, they weren't pure like they were supposed to be, right? When have we heard that before? And then in about 600 B.C., Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar came over and took out Judah, took out the southern kingdom, and he took them out in installments, if you will. So the first installment they took out was 607 B.C., and even in captivity, prophets who were in play before this were embedded in those who were taken captive. A couple of them over there were a young man named Daniel and another named Ezekiel. But Daniel, who was a young guy when they took him 600 years before Jesus, turned out to be a prophet and a dream interpreter. Now, the priests were people, and you've heard this before, were people who God put in place to speak to God on behalf of the people. That, that's what priests do. Prophets spoke to the people on behalf of God. They came with the word of the Lord. And the prophet's primary duty was to speak God's message to people in the context of what was happening in those days. So they did it either orally like this or visually like this or in writing, okay, but much of it, much of what they said were warnings because you have wandering people and you have the prophets coming in saying, hey, hey, over here, not over there, over here. We all know about warnings. Watch your step. Stay here. All right. Stay hydrated. Use sunblock. Stay away from the stove. Okay. Warnings, this is point two in the back of your building, warnings are a call to live life to the full. Our lives are full of warnings. Get any prescription, buy any food. Right? I mean, you, 
Life, is, life doesn't work in, in some ways without warnings. And the ones who wrote the warnings, if you will, over the years, these prophets, are found in the Old Testament. And uh, four of them are called major prophets and the others are called minor prophets, not because they were more or less important, but because the major prophets wrote more, okay? So you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are the major prophets. They wrote lengthy tomes, if you will. And then you have 12 minor prophets. In the original, they were all one book. But in our scriptures, they're these books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and, and Malachi. Early... I just got carried away. I almost had a 13th prophet right there. I was just a... <laughs> Early in the story, the law is given by God to Moses. Later, the prophets come along, and one of their roles, they were preachers and predictors and watchmen and so forth. One of their roles was to say, how are you doing with the law? They, they show up and say, so how are the Ten Commandments coming? How are you doing with that third one? Or that, that their role was to call people back to remember God, if you will. So you have these prophets from Samuel, who's there with Saul. He was the one who anointed Saul originally. All the way to Malachi, you have this 600-year space. And the key phrase for prophets was this. You'll see this in the scriptures. And the word of the Lord came to Amos or Isaiah or Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came. I have an old preacher friend who's now gone. He said there was a church in Kansas where he used to be, and there was an old Mennonite man in that church who every Sunday when the pastor started to come up to the platform, this old man would be there, and he'd tug on the pastor's coat, and he'd say, Pastor, do you have a word from the Lord for us? Today. You see, it doesn't make any difference how many slides I put up, really. You say, I know, why do you put all those up? I just, it helps, okay? It doesn't make any difference how loud or soft I am generally, or anybody is. The key question is does the person who stands here or the person who sits there have a word from the Lord for us today? That was the key idea behind the prophetic ministry they had different personalities Isaiah when you read him he's eloquent he's, he's sort of sophisticated if you will Daniel that that kid who got taken to Babylon Daniel's more relational he's got buddies you know Meshach Sadrach those guys he, he, he does the lion's den thing that those aren't his buddies but he's he's that kind of guy he's a tough he's a tough kid relational if you will and then you have Jeremiah who says right out of the shoots, I'm a kid. He was called the weeping prophet because he wept as he had to say these hard things. Then you have the classic, Elijah. He's the quintessential prophet. In the, in the New Testament, you have this moment called the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is there and Moses shows up. It's his first time in the promised land. And then you have Elijah. So you have the law and the prophets. And Elijah is a tough dude. Elijah takes on all the prophets of the lesser gods in this one moment in 1 Kings 18. I love this story. Some of you remember it. On Mount Carmel, which is not far from the Mediterranean Sea, Mediterranean Ocean, they, um, 
they have a sort of a gunfight at the OK Corral. Some of you who are Western fans, you know, or as my friend Batterson says, it, it, you know, Elijah, because, the, because they had groves and high place altars, all these other religious systems, they, they would offer sacrifices in the high places. He said, he said Elijah was giving them home court advantage to use a basketball term. And here they go, and they're going to, the story goes that they're going to have a competition to see who can call fire from heaven. Remember this story? And so all of the prophets of Asher, the hundreds of them, they're trying to get fire to come from heaven to consume their sacrifice that they have all laid out. And it ain't working. It's not working. And Elijah, he's not sort of, he's not reticent. Let me put it that way. As a matter of fact, he's a trash talker. Some of you basketball fans who are watching March Madness, you, you see these college kids playing, they say, that guy's a trash talker. Nothing like Elijah. Elijah is taunting them all morning. They're trying to get fired. He's saying, where's your God? Is he on vacation? Perhaps he's in the bathroom. That's literally what he says. I'm, I didn't make that up. That's in the original. You say, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. It's in the original. He's just in their faces all the time. And then what happens is the fire comes from heaven, consumes his sacrifice, and all the people who are watching them say the God of Elijah is God. And Elijah's call to Israel is very direct. It's very direct. It says simply this, O Israel, how long will you halt between two opinions? If Jehovah be God, if Yahweh be God, then follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him parentheses but he's a loser okay the prophetic messages that were spoken spoke of judgment and grace future hope and present warning wrath and mercy I'm going to say it again these these are sort of the combinations these are the two sides of the coin prophetic messages spoke of judgment and grace future hope and present warning wrath and mercy it's a little bit like my dad back in the day was when spanking was more in vogue. You know, he'd call me in and I, I had reason, you know, I, I'm sure to be punished or disciplined. And, he, and he'd say something like this, Dick, this is going to hurt me more than you. Anybody ever hear that phrase? As, you know, I'm saying, are you kidding me? What's Anyway. You know, when I read judgment and grace, future hope and present warning, wrath and mercy, I'm thinking... This is parenting. This is parenting right here. You got, you know, okay, you have a timeout for 12 years over here because you did whatever. No, I'm just kidding. But the, but the point is this. Warnings are good, okay? Warnings are good. The person who comes into your life when you're messing up and says, no, he's your friend, okay? Warnings are good. Number three, the, the one who warns you is the one who loves you. The one who warns you is the one who loves you. Or it's corollary, and I'll, I'll say that again. The one who warns you is the one who loves you. It's corollary, number four is this. Warnings are the preemptive strikes of a loving God. Warnings are the preemptive strikes of a loving God. Lamentations 3.22 says it this way. Because of the Lord's great love, 
we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Jesus gave warnings. Paul gave warnings in the New Testament. Face it, if you're alive and breathing, you get warnings. But I don't like to listen to warnings. I'm a three-year-old kid, and you're going to pour me lemonade. (laughs) And you say, honey, I'm going to pour that. And I say, do it myself. And then we clean the lemonade off the wall, and there we go again. Because I didn't listen, because I wasn't obedient, because I didn't pay attention to the warning. And the prophet comes along and says this, because you've forgotten your God, you no longer know not only where you are, but who you are. You lose sight of him, you lose your way. Because warnings are about remembering. You read the Old Testament and consistently you hear the prophet's Speaking on behalf of God saying, do you remember that I brought you out? The exodus is the iconic moment in Israel's history when they had been slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. And he brought them out. And because they didn't pay attention, I loved what Pastor Derek said last week. Took a day to get out of Egypt, took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. This, This idea that you're in slavery over there, I got you out, I took pity on you. And if, if you don't pay attention, you'll end up in slavery again. And that's exactly what happened. Warnings are about remembering. I was driving through Windsor uh, a year or so back. And I, and I came on a fire truck. And it had this, this crazy thing. I thought it was crazy. On the back, it had this sign on the back. It said, stay back 343 feet. And I'm saying to myself, dude, actually that's what my son would say to me. Dude, what, how do you do that? You got to be within 20 feet to read that sign. How can you stay back 340? What is that about? So I went to the fire station. And I walked in. They said, excuse me, could I take a picture of the back of one of your fire trucks? They said, yeah. Apparently others had asked. I don't know. They, a young firefighter took me in there and I took that picture. And I said, tell me, tell me what that's about. He said, that's so that we who fight fires, we who are about saving lives, never forget that on September 11th, 2001, 343 firefighters ran into those buildings in New York City as other people ran out They ran in, and they never came out. Warnings are about remembering. Remember who you are and why you are. While the Israelites were paying a price for not remembering, God never forgot. While the Israelites were captives in Babylon, this happens. 2 Chronicles 36 again. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests, All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord. There's that phrase spoken by Jeremiah. There's one of those guys. In the first year of the Cyrus king of Persia in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus king of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus king of Persia says. 
The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms on earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with him. Now, what had happened was Nebuchadnezzar was overthrown. That's what happens. You're the big dog for a while, then some bigger dog comes in, takes you out. So Persia took out Babylon. And Cyrus, who is not a follower of Yahweh, he's, he's not a worshiper of the Jewish God, God puts it in his heart. He uses a king who doesn't believe in Jehovah and Yahweh to set up the return of the captives. What is that about? It means that God can use anyone, anytime, in any way he pleases. And even when I'm in a bad place, he is still at work. Point six, when your, wor- when your world is falling apart, God is still working his plan. When your, word is fa- when your world is falling apart, God is still working his plan. Wherever you are right now, if you feel captured or lost or apart, he has not forgotten. God remembers There's only one thing God doesn't remember about you, and that's your sins. They're in the sea of his forgetfulness. All of the the bad and the ugly, all the junk, he has forgotten. I tend to remember. I say, remember that thing I did? He said, you know, I just, it doesn't come to mind, folks. There's something about the God who remembers you but doesn't remember your stuff that is profound. He's at work down the generations I sit here and I'm saying, I stand here today because of the prayers of a mother and a dad, a grandmother, a great grandmother. Why do you sit here today? Who is it in your past that you don't even know that prayed for you down the generations, the generations to come? I have a friend, his name's Bob, Rob Roden, and he's a pastor on the East Coast. He's an older guy now like me, and he, he, um, he told me this story. He was speaking at a place and he happened to speak to, a, to the co-speaker. He was mourning. The guy was in the evening. And he said, he said, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. And the older guy said, really? I used to pastor a little church in Jacksonville. He said, what high school did you go to? And my friend Bob said, Robert E. Lee High School on, on McDuff Boulevard. He said, really? My little church, which really wasn't doing great, was across the street from that high school. And every day I used to go over and stand outside that chain link fence where they were playing ball. I'd put my hands up on that chain link fence and I'd pray for the kids who were out on the fields playing ball there. And Bob said when he said that, I had this overwhelming sense that you never know who's praying for you down the generations. You remember Daniel? Daniel ends up becoming second in command of Babylon. He, he saves all the wise men when Nebuchadnezzar wants to wipe him out. Later on, and I don't know if this is accurate, my friend Batterson says, you know, here you have Daniel who saves all the wise men from being killed by the king because they didn't live up to whatever his standards were. And 500 years later, Jesus is born in Bethlehem and wise men come from the east 500 years later. And Herod says, when you find him, tell me because I want to worship him, which was a lie. He wanted to kill him. And the wise men don't tell him. So over here, Daniel saves the wise men. And 500 years later, the wise men, in some sense, save Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps, you know, maybe the story of Daniel was told. You say, is that in the Bible? No, I just made that up. But it sounds tremendous, you know. (laughs) It, It has great possibility, all right. 
And under Cyrus of Persia, the captives come back. So what do we do when we come back? What do they do? In Ezra, it says this, a comeback calls for rebuilding an altar to God and putting yourself on it. Rebuilding an altar to God and putting yourself on it, if you will. You come back to the how. Humility, obedience, good hearing, if you will. That's what obedience is, and worship. You say, uh, prophets are scary, though. They have hard messages. They're wild men. Oh, I think they're also encouragers. I love this from Jeremiah 29 said to these people when they came back, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. There are other things like Isaiah. He gives strength to the weary. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. So what do we say about the prophets? I say this. The one who warns you is the one who loves you. The one who warns you is the one who cares. And the one who warns you is a profound gift to you. You say, do we have any of those, have any of those types around because we have the Holy Spirit now and he does that warning and convict. Do we have any of those kinds? Of, I think we, we've had some. I think 100 years ago, we got that profound gift. 100 years ago this year, in 1918, two things happened that changed the world. In November 11th of that year, in a railroad car 37 miles north of Paris in a forest, an armistice was signed ending World War I. Changed the course of the world. Four days earlier, in North Carolina, a baby was born to a dairy farmer and his wife, and they named that baby William Franklin Graham Junior, The world would come to know him as Billy. This tall, gangly, Hollywood, good-looking farm boy would end up going to 185 nations, speaking to over 215 million people. The Gallup poll once said that one out of every six Americans personally saw or attended some meeting where Billy Graham spoke. He had a radio program called Hour, Hour of Decision that lasted for 66 years from 1950 to 2016, and he spoke truth to power. He knew and walked with 12 out of our 46 presidents. He was, he was a candid person. When, when interviewed by Diane Sawyer, an anchorwoman at the time, said, what do you think the greatest challenge is that you've been trying to work with all these years? And he said, race. In the Cold War, he went behind the Iron Curtain when our diplomats weren't really doing that or we weren't having people do that, and he was roundly criticized by a lot of folks, his response was something like this. Jesus didn't say that, that he was the resurrection and the life for everybody except communists. Those who didn't like him said he was a showman. Those who liked him knew that his words had given them life because he spoke the word of the Lord to them. Some people call him an evangelist, a good newser. I think he was that. Some have called him America's pastor. I think Billy Graham was a 20th century prophet. I think he was the great inviter. I first saw him when I was a senior in high school of April 1959. I went to the Cow Palace in San Francisco, this huge arena, 
And there I heard him speak. I don't remember what he said except I'm sure, you know, his phrase was the Bible says. I'm sure he said that a bunch of times. And then they came to the end. And that choir started to sing, this mass choir and all these people. And they started to sing this. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. The last verse goes, Just as I am, thou wilt receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And they came by the hundreds. I remember sitting there saying, what, what is this? But the word of the Lord had come to hundreds of people and said, just come as you are without a with no defense except his blood was shed for you. The next time I saw him was five years later. I was a young married student uh, at Wheaton College, and I went to this conference with Ruth called the Urbana Conference. It sat with 9,500 university students and heard Billy again. Don't remember what he said except a bunch of times he said, the Bible says. My favorite picture of him was on Time Magazine, November of 1993. It was his 75th birthday, and they dubbed it, as you can see, a Christian in winter. I met him twice, once in 1995. We had dinner with about eight of us. And then I met him three days after 9-11. The morning after 9-11, we were in Washington, D.C. I got a call from the White House. I rarely got a call from the White House. But I knew a couple of the faith-based guys. They invited me down to help create a list of people to be invited to the prayer service two days later. And um, Ruth and I went to that prayer service at the National Cathedral. This huge cathedral took 83 years to build. And uh, we got there an hour early. It was a dreary, rainy day and helicopters, security all over the place. About 20, we were down toward the front and about 25 minutes beforehand, I said, I think... I think I'm going to use the restroom. And I got up and I walked all the way back to the back of the cathedral and started out that door. And as I reached for the door, it swung outward and I'm standing face to face with Billy Graham. And he looked at me and smiled and said, he took my hand and said, I'm so glad you came. I didn't want to wash that hand for a week. <laughs> I came back in, they had speakers and then Billy got up to speak and they took him up to the, he was 83, a little unsteady. They took him up to the high pulpit like you have in those cathedrals. He spoke for 12 minutes. I don't know how many times he said the Bible says. And then he, he said there is hope for our nation. We need to turn to Jesus. There is respite. There is hope. There is healing in him. He was done and he started down. They went up to help him down. And as he came down to this level, the floor level was there and the dean of the cathedral was sitting right there in a high back chair and a couple of his associates and it was dead still. 4,000 people was dead still. And as he started down these stairs, the dean of the cathedral started this. And all of a sudden, 4,000 people were on their feet in a standing ovation 
for the prophet, the great inviter, if you will. Three and a half weeks ago, Wednesday morning, 7.30 a.m. Eastern time, Billy Graham took his last breath on this planet. I don't know how heaven works, but I have this thought in my mind that he just showed up in the throne room. And there the great I am, the creator of all the universe, the God who speaks galaxies into existence, sees him, smiles spreading across his face like all eternity. And he reaches out toward Billy, takes his hand and says, I'm so glad you came. And the angels cheered. The heavenly hosts were on their feet cheering at the top of their lungs. I can hear folks from the crowd, those who have gone before saying, Billy, I remember Philadelphia. Philadelphia is where I came. Moscow was where I came. Singapore was where I came. You say, yeah, but that's Billy. <laughs> of course they'll cheer for Billy. Really? This book says, the Bible says, that when one of us responds, the angels cheer. So there, let's bow our heads and pray. In thinking and praying about this time, this weekend, I've had this distinct sense that this word was for somebody, not just a bunch of folks, and it might be a bunch of folks, but for somebody, somebody maybe you've never been cheered for, maybe Maybe you, you knew Jesus as a kid, but you just wandered off or you're on the fence or you're just out there. And this moment, as Billy would say, is your moment. I'm going to pray a prayer to God. And if you want to come to him, if you want to build that altar and put yourself on it, inside, in your heart, as I'm praying out loud, you pray with me. Father God, here I am. I've been a wanderer, but I choose to come home. I choose to receive your free gift of grace in Jesus. I want a life that is new. I need you to take care of my history, all the junk. I need you to wash it away. I need a new today, and I need a future, and I believe the word of the Lord. I believe what your word says about you. And I choose to receive you now. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.